0: hey, what's going on? It's Champagne Sharks. We just want to make some announcements that we didn't make when we recorded this episode during the housekeeping segment. So anyway, we have a YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. Very easy to remember, or just go to youtube.com and search Champagne Sharks. You'll see the channel. You'll see our logo. It's not hard to find. And the other thing is we have merchandise now. The merchandise is pretty cool. And we're going to use the money that we're make from the merchandise to pursue some of our other goals for the podcast. It's tentatively it's tentative right now, but we're trying to do a podcast network. We're just trying to figure out how to make it work and we hope to pay the podcasters a pretty good rate. So, yeah, What we're trying to do is make a money stream to help make that a reality. And all this stuff helps in respect to that, uh, creating equipment, buying server space, all this stuff. So, yeah, if you want more content, not just from us, but from other people, all this stuff really helps. What we're hoping is to get some black women, some black queer voices and some other black men as well and try to create things that are Kind of in the spirit of the show, but don't quite just reproduce the worldview because I think that'd be kind of boring for everybody. You know, things that similar in spirit but also different enough to justify their existence. You know, so all that helps. So go to Redbubble.com for the merchandise store and search Tbilzie. Put in that search term T B I L Z I E. That's T Tbilzie. T B I L Z I E. So in quick summation, it's YouTube.com forward slash champagne sharks for the YouTube channel. And don't just watch the videos, comment, like, subscribe and share. All that helps the discoverability and the YouTube algorithm as far as promoting and sending us out. So that's very important. You know, definitely share. And also redbubble.com search T-B-I-L-Z-I-E. You'll see three designs. Each design has its own line of products under it. So yeah, redbubble.com Search T and check out all three designs and the products underneath them. You'll see T-shirts, hoodies, tablet and smartphone cases, as well as pins, stickers, COVID masks, which we make no profit on. The COVID masks we sell at cost because we don't feel like it's right to make a profit off a of pandemic. So that's the one thing that will be at cost, and pins and a bunch of other cool products. Uh, uh, the mugs are beautiful. Check out the mugs especially. You'll especially love the mugs. Yeah. So check all that. Stuff stuff out you'll like it we think it's pretty good and we'll get a store site up that's way easier to navigate so without further ado here's the episode you're really going to enjoy it interesting topic and also uh, reach out to us at champagne at gmail.com if you have any questions or feedback or are interested in the podcast network we're always interested in new voices all right thanks so much talk to you soon Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? How's everyone doing? This is uh, Trevor. Go to patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks to become a subscriber to the podcast. You get double the episodes, not just one. You also get access to the voice and Discord chat server. You also get access to show notes and a bunch of other uh, good stuff, newsletter that we send now. And um, we also created another tier because some people actually said this was uh, interesting. Some people said they actually wanted to donate more like they felt that um, they could and they were down to and they wanted to donate more. And something that's interesting, I didn't realize this with uh, Patreon, if you try to donate more than the allotted $5 a month tier, it actually doesn't allow you to get the premium bonus perks. Like you have to be exactly in that tier. So uh, people were joining the upper tier. I mean, people were actually paying more than the $5 and they weren't able to get any of the perks. So then they had to downgrade back to $5 to get the perks. So In response to those people, we created a ten dollar tier. So if you are one of the people who wants to donate more, uh, we created a ten dollar tier. We'll give you a shout out on air, too. But otherwise, it's all the same perks as the five dollar tier. So, yeah, I mean, some people actually want to spend more money and we appreciate it. We're not going to complain. So uh, thanks for that. And yeah, that's all the house cleaning for today. Uh, Now we're going to... um, Introduce our guests and we're going strictly by alphabetical order. So uh Christopher, both first name and last name, you you come first. So uh we'll start with you, Christopher. If you can just say who you are, where to find you, what what you do, and all that good stuff.
1: Okay, sure. Yeah. Um so thank you for having me. Um my name is Christopher Petsko. I go by Chris. Um I am uh currently a um a postdoctoral researcher at Duke University. Um, And I am trained as a social psychologist. Um, And my my research uh, uh, centers on how it is that we stereotype people as a function of the multiple different kinds of groups that they belong to.
0: And we also have uh, Justin, if you can introduce yourself.
2: Hi, uh, thank you for having me as well. My name is Justin Preddy. I am a fourth-year graduate student in the Department of Psychology at the University of Kansas. Um, My research centers largely on taking an intersectional approach to understanding person perception and impression formation, so how do we form impressions of people and in part how the stereotype that we create about them, how does that drive different kinds of behavior and how we interact in the world.
0: Uh, great. So to give us some context about how um the two of you ended up being here together, I um I came across Christopher on Twitter and he was mentioning his paper. And I found his paper um very interesting and it reminded me of another paper that I read by someone named Derek Padula uh about how being and David
1: David Padula. Oh, oh sorry, David, no, it's David fine. Padula. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh no, it's yeah,
0: fine. yeah, David Padula about um how being Black and gay can affect hiring practices in unexpected ways. It, it reminded me of that paper. So I, I read his paper. I found it really interesting. And then I read some more of his papers. So I reached out to him, but we weren't able to make it happen right then and there. And I put in the back burner for a while. And in the meantime, I think he made some even, some more papers even. So then I read those and then I I... I, I came back to you and you mentioned to me Justin and you said, oh, uh, there's Justin Pretty who um, does very interesting work too. You might wanna have him on because I can't come on right now. I read some Justin's work and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. What if I had both of you on together because it's such an interesting overlap. I would rather wait till both of you were available. And I have to say, I do a lot of reading for this uh, podcast. I try to read everything that people do before they come on. Uh, in full and i have to say this was one of the most challenging prep things I've ever uh, had to do, because not only is it the content of your guys' paper, but both of you guys' papers draw on a long tradition discourse as part of an ongoing conversation. So then I ended up having to read a lot of stuff about uh, social dominance theory, the double jeopardy, the intersectional invisibility, and a bunch of other stuff. I had to kind of synthesize all that to, I feel, fully contextualize and appreciate your guys' papers. So um, uh, they weren't the thickest reads I've ever had to prepare for a show, a show but they were very very dense with uh information. I mean both were very clear in the reasoning and and their um theses but what I was wondering was um what brought you to this line of uh questioning or, or this, these topics, because they're both very similar. I noticed, uh, for example, that Justin, you cited Christopher in your most recent uh, manuscript. And I noticed, Christopher, uh, you recommended Justin to me. And I was wondering if you guys had a shared source of inspiration as far as coming to this topic, or if it's just the general gist of where this, this conversation is going in academia in general.
1: Well, there's a couple of things. Um, One thing is that for the first several decades that psychologists who studied the kinds of things that Justin and I study, things like stereotyping and impression formation and discrimination for a very long time, like uh, for many decades, psychologists tended to study these things in a very like one size fits all kind of way. So for example, they would like, they would run an experiment and they would show people um, like, you know, an applicant for a job who was either Whoever had a, a you know a stereotypically white sounding name or a stereotypically black sounding name, and they would make it you know to make the, the experiment nice and controlled, they would make it so that the applicant was always the same gender group. It was maybe always a man, and they would make it so that the person was always heterosexual. And, they, and it's basically they would control as many factors as they possibly could. And then at the end of the experiment, they would make some sweeping general conclusion about racial bias. They would conclude, for example, that um, that, that, you know, white individuals tend to be hired much, much more frequently than black individuals, even given the same qualifications. And, and, and an issue with this literature for the first several decades that people study these questions is that they tended to overlook, uh, you know, the diversity that there can be within groups of people. And they overlooked the possibility that, you know, racial bias that manifests toward young cisgender men might not be the same kind of racial bias that manifests toward, uh, toward black women or toward, um, younger black, you know, older black matter, you know, basically they, they ignore the great diversity that there was within people. And so essentially like one of the main, one of the main drivers behind the reason why I study these questions is to, is to try and add diversity to the literature on stereotyping and to make it more reflective of, you know, the, the various, um, uh, uh, sort of positions of different social identities that we all have.
2: Uh, I came to the work, I think, Like many scholars of color through personal experience, because I identify both as bisexual, I largely use the umbrella term queer, but as queer and black. And so part of my interest in this work has always just been about how people negotiate my sexual orientation and my race together simultaneously in these really kind of synergistic, interesting ways and thinking about how they react to me, how they don't know how to react to me, as they're trying to integrate the different ways of my identity, speak to each other. And so because of that, I've always been particularly interested in sort of one of the central tenets of intersectionality, which is the way in which different identities mutually constitute each other. So the idea that you cannot really speak about gender absent of race because the way we understand race is bound up in how we understand gender. And so thinking about the complexity of that is kind of what led me to this week and particularly to the intersectional framework as a useful way of understanding and teasing about how this actually functions psychologically.
0: Something that I found kind of interesting when I was... um Going through your papers and also going through the both of you have a similar way of going through the through line of all the different theories that are happening, you know. And tell me if I understand correctly, double jeopardy uh, theory is the same as the additive theory where you can just kind of add the identities together and figure out um, how oppressed somebody is. Or am I being glib and conflating two things
1: no there i mean um they are they are similar double jeopardy is an additive theory yeah i mean it assumes that um if a person is marginalized by their gender as well as their racial group that they're sort of doubly marginalized compared to somebody who maybe is marginalized along only one of those things
0: okay and then there's the can you can and either one of you or both of you feel free to weigh in on this the the multiplicative theory versus the double jeopardy uh theory
2: I mean, I can I mean I can jump in on this one. I mean, the way that I understand it, because I looked at your um the review of the questions that you that you offered us, and I think that sometimes we tend to frame these theories as more antagonistic than they actually are in reality. I think of them more as progressive along a sort of a through line of further evolving theory. But the way that I understand the multiplicative theory is that it is somewhat similar to the additive perspective, except that the additive perspective really does consider different identities as completely what we call orthogonal or independent characteristics. And it doesn't really articulate how the multiple identities that you're evaluating, whether those are race, gender or sexuality, how they themselves are involved with each other, how they make each other up. And so I think that the multiplicative theory was sort of the first foray for psychology from an empiricist standpoint into really considering not just how different identities are uh, related to each other as far as layering one thing on top of the other, but really talking about, well, if we are looking at race and gender, we're not simply just considering race added to gender on that particular discriminatory basis, but we're also considering how race and gender are actually related to each other and what does race tell us about gender, what does gender tell us about race, and how does that particular complexity show up in sort of psychological outcomes that we're interested in assessing. So I think for me, that was the first general kind of further step beyond a simply additive model that really does consider these identities as completely separate.
0: Yeah, and one thing that I, uh, there's one paper I read, unfortunately, I cannot remember the name of the paper, but it was one paper I read where the person was saying that the problem with, they have the additive theory is this idea that gender can exist dec- decontextualized from race. So when you had this idea of, uh, black plus woman, it's like, which woman? Because a white woman's um, level of privilege and experience is different than uh, a black woman. Like there's lots of kind of decontextualized like thing called a woman that has a shared uh, experience across all racial and class class lines. And I think it was a paper that was um, trying to make the case for the multi- the multiplicative theory. I found it to be a pretty good paper. I wish I remembered the name of it. But then there's also um, and also I think what you said was very true. And I think I put in the in the questions I sent you the word versus, which I think made it look more antagonistic. But I think you're right. A lot of these things actually have a lot of overlap with each other rather than uh, straight up conflict or oppositional to each other. So I'm glad I'm glad you said that because uh, there's another set of paper. And this is the one that I find the hardest to fully understand was um, and I think it's important to define it because your your guys work builds on it a lot, which is intersectional invisibility, which I made a note of as also non-prototypicality theory. And if you guys could, since Justin, you answered the last one, I'll, I'll pass this off to Christopher this time. And feel free if you want to add anything to supplement what Christopher says. Uh, but yeah, if you could uh, explain this one.
1: Sure. Um, I can try. Um, yeah. So so intersectional invisibility theory um, is a theory by um, a researcher named Valerie Vons and her um, her collaborator Richard Ibach, and basically what what they said is that um, is that basically basically when a person is marginalized along more than a single dimension of their identity, if they are uh, in, in this country, for example, um, uh, white people are privileged, men relative to women are privileged. Um, and straight people relative to gay people or, or queer people generally tend to be privileged. And so what they were saying was that if you're the kind of person who's marginalized in more than one way, say you're both black and a woman, they said that basically uh, you're almost like rendered invisible in the minds of people who are thinking about blackness itself or womanness itself. And the reason that they said that this happens is that when people think about a, a single marginalized identity, just one, they tend to assume other things about that identity by default. So if they think about um, black people, generally speaking, in this country, they by default they don't think of all black people. They tend to think of black men who are heterosexual. That sort of is their prototype of what blackness is. And so, the idea of intersectional visibility is, if you if you deviate from that prototype by being not just black but also a woman, suddenly you're no longer aligned with people's idea of what it means to be a black individual. And because people's idea of what it means to be a, um, a woman is is to be a, a you know a white straight woman. Black women are also not aligned with this either. And so in a way, like they're because they're doubly marginalized, they're, they're no longer fitting the bill for what people call to mind when they think of a typical black person or a typical woman. And in this way, black women are kind of invisibilized in people's minds.
0: Before you move on, is there anything you want to add to that, Justin?
1: I mean, I think that, that Christopher gave an excellent
2: summary, I think what I would add, because I think that sometimes the difficulty is that we don't often do a good enough job of connecting the work in psychology to other kinds of literatures, right? So there is a tradition in English scholarship, for instance, of the tragic mulatto trope. And I like that as a general idea in some sense, because it has this notion of sitting in between two worlds. And I think that that is a, a useful parallel or a useful touchstone to discuss intersectional invisibility. Because like Christopher pointed out, what it really is, is that your existence in categories that are not representative of broader groups that you belong to. So being a black woman, you are not considered to be the prototype for blackness because that's a black cisgender straight male. You're also not prototypical of the category of the category woman more broadly because that assumes a white cisgender straight woman. And so in some ways, even though you are categorized more broadly and hierarchically as belonging to both the groups of blackness, and womanhood or womanness, or however you want to frame that, that really, because you are non-prototypical and people don't consider you, you are invisible in that regard. And so the way I describe this to my students is it's very much like the one before the X in algebra when you're learning in elementary school. The one is always there, and we know it's there, but it's invisible. And unless you write it, no one ever actually considers that it exists. So it has this kind of invisibility notion where because you're not prototypical of either of these groups, persons notions of what the, the makeup of the group is does not actually include you. And that exclusion has significant psychological implications in terms of the kinds of things that we see. So, for instance, my advisor, Dr. Bayonet or Dr. Monica Bayonet, who is one of the foremost experts in social cognition in American psychology, has some very interesting work with one of her former students, Amanda Sescu, where what they're really interested in how they demonstrate intersectional invisibility is through this very interesting paradigm of having um, contributions of women and men, both black and white, in a meeting. And then they test people's memory for who gave the particular contribution. And what they find is that persons misremember the contributions of black women relative to black men, white men, and white women. So in some way, because we do not associate, and their argument, of course, is that because we don't associate black women with a place in either blackness or in womanhood, that even their contributions themselves become visible. We don't recollect that they are the architects of the ideas themselves. And so I think that that is kind of where we have to think about these things interacting with each other.
0: Something that I had kind of trouble with with reading all this stuff was that I didn't realize how much bad pop intersectionality is out there with um, people in the media or people who are supposed to be academics. But they're kind of like media academics and they go around and their main field a lot of times is not even though the academics, their main field is not actually psychology or the original fields that these papers are from, but they might be somebody who is in history but call themselves intersectional feminists and they, they work the media or they might be like African American studies, but they call themselves intersectional. So kind of what happens is even though they're really good in their field of studies, I think there's a tendency of people to think, especially if you're black or or a woman, uh they think, oh, this person must be an expert on intersectionality because they're an academic and they're black and they're a woman. But they actually, uh, their field is actually history or economics or something that's not actually this. And I started realizing the problem with that when I started reading a lot of this stuff was I had to unlearn a lot of the bad, simplistic intersectionality that um, was being pushed by these media experts because it wasn't actually, like like two things that I I kind of found I thought were very kind of glib workings of, of these theories is one- Most people tend to keep using the additive. So they'll say things like, and this happens a lot on Twitter and in the media, like there'll be someone who says, oh, black women uh, experience, no, women experience uh, sexism, uh, but not white women experience sexism, but not racism. Black men experience racism, but not sexism. Black women experience both, therefore they're doubly oppressed. Like everything, everything defaulted to that additive model. But then, like I would tell people, that's not really true because there's a lot of gender-based um discriminations that black men get, that black women don't get as much, whether it's being pulled over by the cops, going to jail, uh, suicides, victim of homicides. Like, it's not really fair to say that black men don't experience. Or, or like Jim Crow and the, uh, and specifically lynchings. Lynchings happened vastly disproportionately to black men. The um, ra- the false rape charges, the exonerations, and it was very hard to get that past people. That's something that I thought was in the literature, and then I didn't realize that I read your guys' papers. Then reading the papers you guys cited, that that's actually like, like if anyone does believe the additive theory, it's not a big portion of. The literature. Most people kind of actually understand what I was um, trying to explain to these people. I was, I was realizing I was giving a lot of the intersectionality a bad rap based on people pushing a dumbed down uh, version of it. The second misconstruing that I kept seeing that I was kind of uh, disabused of by reading your guys' work is intersectional in- invisibility is always kind of treated as double. Double whammy, as in, uh, black women are missing out by not being associated with womanhood. And people think of women like, like they're always losing out to, um, white women, but also they're always losing out to, um, black men by not being considered the face of blackness. But things like, um, social dominance theory and subordinate male target hypothesis posit oppression as, and, and racism as a, Male versus male enterprise and also some of the other intersectional stuff admits that there's some ways that um black women actually benefit. And I think your work kind of talks about this too. That sometimes and this is what I want to ask you guys about next, that sometimes not being the prototypical um idea of blackness or being um not being the being intersectionally invisible can sometimes be a bonus, like like not being consider the paradigm of blackness can sometimes help a black woman or help a black queer person is that something that's fair to say comes across in your papers
1: well I see so you mentioned a lot just then I wanted yeah to yeah in. yeah, the,
0: yeah the, that was kind of funny
1: no it's totally no it's totally fine I wanted to just mention a few things the, the first thing that I was thinking about was um, was that you know in your defense uh, people use different fields of social scientific study uh, and even you know when you compare social scientists with people in the humanities Different people from different disciplines um, use these use the term intersectionality in, in very different ways. So, so sometimes it might not actually be that like you know one group of people isn't understanding the ideas fully. It might just literally be that different sets of people have fundamentally different ways of construing the meaning of of, of intersectionality. So that was sort of just like one thought. The um, but to your but to your like actual question, which was like, can it ever be advantageous to be doubly marginalized? I think that was like basically the question. Is that is that
0: right? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. To be to be considered, if not to be doubly marginalized, then at least to be invis- invisibilized under the black category.
1: Well, yeah. So, so it's 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 really interesting that you ask that. I mean, so in in the in the original intersectional invisibility paper, um, the authors did say that they really believe that um, to be intersectionally invisible can, at least in principle, come with both advantages and disadvantages. Um, but I think. I think like a, like sort of a deep assumption among people who study intersectional stereotyping and intersectional prejudice is that truly like this stuff is not one size fits all. It really isn't, you know, like just because like black women relative to black men in a particular context might not face the same level or type of discrimination is not to say that like one of them has it better in some fundamental sense than the other. You know, it's like, I think, cause, cause 'cause surely just as there are contexts in which, being invisible relative to another group can advantage you. S- certainly, there are other contexts in which it can disadvantage you. Um, and Justin brought this up earlier with the with his advisor's um, uh, demonstration that that like quite literally, people can, people sometimes will completely misremember what Black women look like and what they say. I mean, that's certainly um, something that. I guess you could say could be advantageous in particular contexts, but very, you know, certainly it's, it's also something that can be really deeply disadvantaging. So those are my thoughts about it. I don't, Justin, do you want to jump in? Um, I mean, I, I agree. I think that I hesitate as a
2: scholar to suggest, like Christopher was saying, that The potential advantageous benefits of being intersectionally invisible, you know, are somehow, is somehow a preferable state to be than the regular discrimination you face by being within a marginalized group or multiple marginalized groups. I think that is a dangerous and slippery argument to make. What I think is more true, however, is that thinking through so, so for instance, even to extend Christopher's example, right? Because this is one of the arguments that you sometimes hear persons make about intersectional work more broadly, and particularly the the, the place of black women more broadly in sort of related black liberation movements, right? So one of the things that happens as far as invisibility, so even related to my advisor's work, is that many persons, especially even within the field of psychology and other fields, will invoke the term inter- intersectionality and completely ignore the particularly strong history of Black feminist thought that gave birth to intersectionality as an actual theory. And so you have people invoking this term and who do, who do not cite Kimberly Crenshaw at all, who is herself a black woman and is one of the primary architects of how we actually understand intersectionality as a theoretical framework and as a political form of praxis as well too, as a political way of understanding power relations in the world. And so I think that to the extent that people are not considered to be prototypical of their groups, they sometimes also miss out on the particular advantages that are related to being the center of those groups. So lots of conversations on social media right now are particularly concerned with the ways in which Black women, even though they are doing a lot of the central work of movement building related to Black Lives Matter and other racial justice organizations, their particular issues related to gender and the particular intersectional way that gender shows up for Black women are sometimes ignored in broader political discussions and are considered to be distracting. So that when people talk about the fact that we can't have these conversations about the ways in which um, cisgender Black men perpetuate violence within these activist communities, that is a representation of what intersectional visibility looks like. Because you are not prototypical of this group and because we can make a systemic argument or a systematic argument that Black men may face Greater degrees of particular kinds of state sanctioned violence because of their prototypicality. What the inverse then becomes is that we don't have the time to discuss equally important conversations because Black women are not themselves prototypical of either of their singular groups. And so I think. I push back very strongly against the notion that we have to look at it in this super dichotomous way. Because even if we are talking about advantages, and I put those in air quotes that you can't see because I'm not on camera, but because when we say advantages, what we are really talking about are different degrees of freedom in an unfree system. And so I'm not really interested in in, in arguing that tit-for-tat perspective. I think it is diminishing, and it is actually antithetical to the broader argument of intersectionality to begin
1: with. Yeah, it's interesting too, because it can can sort of distract you from paying attention to the the overall disadvantage itself. Like, if you're, if you're like, focusing instead on, like, who has it worse, like, you're sort of potentially just completely overlooking, like, the, the problem itself.
2: Yeah, and to your point, Trevor, as well, sorry, to, to your point, Trevor, as well, you know, even when Christopher was talking about Valerie Pelley, Vaughn, who's a black woman, who is the author of the Intersectional, Intersectional Invisibility People, she spends quite a lot of time in that work actually talking about the dangers of playing oppression Olympics, and why that is a, a dangerous and slippery way to even understand how different identities interact as it relates to discriminatory practices. And so I think it's funny also, too, that when people speak about intersectional invisibility and they critique it, that often a Black woman's direct words about her own work are often forgotten in the broader critique of what intersectional invisibility might be directing us to, which again is a further example of the very phenomenon that she is investigating. Yeah, it's
1: kind of ironic and sad. <laughs> like,
2: um, yeah,
0: yeah, but I kind of noticed that a lot like people kind of come to these things with their own kind of motivated reasoning and interpret things uh in certain ways. So yeah, like like I said, I was very kind of surprised when I read the actual work how nuanced a lot of this stuff was compared to what people boiled it um down to. And I don't know if it's a good faith mistake that they're making online where they're trying to create this absolute hierarchy of of oppression olympics or if it's um deliberate misrepresentation but like i was really surprised so for example the example i was given the most often was kimberly crenshaw giving a speech where she gives an example of these black women at a plant and the plant had some kind of diversity initiatives that uh were meant to get more black people in the plant but the plant um hired a bunch of black men and used that to satisfy that initiative And then there was um, a feminist initiative to get more women there. So they just hired white women and then the black women were um, unprotected, you know, and there were people online kind of using that as a way to say, hey, this is intersectional invisibility. This is why black women are universally like, you know, as an objective value, like uh, on the bottom. And I was like, that's very true that in that context uh, they suffer, but there could be other situations where they do okay. And people are like, you need to be more intersectionality. You're not getting it. But then when I read more Kimberly Crenshaw, her actual work was more nuanced than that, where she said, uh, it's not that uh, simple. So then I was kind of wondering like, okay, so she herself is saying like, you know, what you guys are saying that in some context, this happens, in some context that happens. And she also said, it's not just additive. Like she explicitly said, it's not just additive identities. You can't just add identities together. She explicitly spoke against that. Very similar to how you guys said that um Valerie is it Purdue Vaughn? Is that her? Purdy Vaughn's, yeah. But Purdy Vaughn's, yeah. I didn't want to I butcher the pronunciation. Oh actually
1: I think it's I think it's well so when she authored that paper that was her last name. But I think her 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 uh last name is currently Purdy Greenway. Green, I think yeah. it's changed I think that's correct, yeah. yes. Yeah. But in, in any event in any event, you you have the right person. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, uh in when I read her work, I was very um impressed with uh, the nuance, the nuance in the intersectional external invisibility Like you guys said, it wasn't a, uh, just trying to create a rigid um, hierarchy. And, and I feel like the reason this is important to discuss is because you guys build on a lot of this stuff. So I kind of want to kind of lay the foundation for the field before we, um, get into your specific papers, I think the last thing we haven't really discussed, we could just talk about um, social dominance theory and subordinate male target hypothesis. Uh, as far as like how that relates, yeah.
1: I'll try. Um, yeah. So Justin, feel free to jump in. I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about um, SDO in a while, but but okay. So social dominance uh, theory, um, uh, in terms of its implications for like intersectional stereotyping, um, argues in essence, that, uh, that, that men from particular marginalized groups will tend to face a greater brunt of the discrimination that's directed toward those groups. And that's, that's what this theory refers to as the subordinate male target hypothesis. The idea is that if you are a subordinate group member uh, uh, and, and there's bias against that particular group, um, that it targets uh, the males from that group specifically um and the the evidence in support of the subordinate male target hypothesis that this theory tends to point to when articulating the or trying to support the validity of the hypothesis are some of the things that you mentioned um earlier Trevor things like um police civilian violence disproportionately being uh, directed toward black men relative to black women um uh things of that, that nature um and so th- this theory actually comes from like a um uh an evolutionary standpoint um uh, and, and, essentially like, like, like one assumption of the theory is that, is basically that like, like sort of, uh, uh, I don't really know how to explain it. Like it's essentially that like, um, well, I maybe, Justin, do you maybe want to jump in and help me and help me out here? I'm, so, I'm so, I can't remember, I actually can't remember now that I'm thinking out, thinking about it out loud. Like, like, like why specifically like the evolutionary reasoning baked into the theory causes us to believe that men relative to women would be more likely to face discrimination.
2: Right. I think from an evolutionary standpoint, and like Christopher, and so I I kind of wanted to articulate as well before I give my broader response, that social dominance theory shows up as a reference point in my work, in part because we are required to often pay homage to the kind of theoretical trajectory that grounds our work, but also because I think that what I was interested in articulating through social dominance theory and implications for intersectionality and this kind of work is that social dominance theory is specifically oriented at, at a system level around hierarchies of power and status. And so really thinking about what the implications are for intersectionality at a systemic level Level in terms of the way different groups are organised in society, and so social dominance theory, like Christopher was articulating, has an evolutionary background that suggests that because, from an evolutionary standpoint, men relative to women are more are more likely to be the arbiters themselves of um, violence and power and power discourse, that they are likely both to be the architects of discrimination but also the recipients of discrimination relative to. The women within these different groups. This is also in some ways related to, because everything is connected, a broader notion of prototypicality. Because how this the reason that men are typically situated evolutionary as the arbiters of this has also a lot to do with how we understand maleness and masculinity as the default context from which we decide how we understand different groups. And so that is like largely part of the argumentary behind the subordinate male hypothesis as well as social dominance theory more broadly. I think for my purposes, when I was invoking it in my own work, what I was really thinking through was really about the aspect of social dominance theory that addresses what's called legitimizing myths, which is that what are the beliefs that people have that justify their prejudicial attitudes towards people? And I was using that to situate, particularly because my work is focused on sexual orientation, to consider how social dominance theory really talks about the belief that heterosexuality is the default. And the fact that that is the belief that we generally have, that having that particular belief of heterosexuality as the default creates the social environment from which people can legitimize prejudice and discrimination against queer persons, and how then that is complicated by the fact that in a similar way, because our default for prototypicality and power around race is always centered around whiteness, that in terms of hierarchy, where do black people fall? And I think Trevor asked a question about Afro-pessimism that we can discuss after if you're still interested. But I think for me, in terms of thinking about it as a, a theory oriented around how power shows up in a structural sense... That was really what my interest was in linking it in some way to the work that I'm doing.
0: And, and um, it's, uh, since I, thank you both of you, since I recently read a lot of um, social dominance theory in preparation f- for this, because I actually kind of refresh myself with everything to understand your papers. I can kind of say from what I remember, Christopher, as far as the evolutionary reasons, I think what it was kind of trying to say was that men are kind of the threat when you're um, conquering and don't really have a use to an invading group of men like like the idea was that um oppression and oppression and domination and subjugation is primarily a male-to-male enterprise that was kind of what i was getting from it but women get oppressed too but women get oppressed to the degree in which they're deemed as loyal or um supportive of the men and the less affiliated or the more distance they're willing to be from the men there's a sense that they can to a degree escape it to for so for for example some examples would be like when uh the nazis invaded france and took over uh paris there were a lot of women who were able get by because they were um lovers or partners or, uh, accommodators to the Nazis in a way that, um, men couldn't really, um, get by. they couldn't be really take advantage of. Those are the women whose heads were shaved when, um, France was, France was liberated. They, uh, made a big spectacle of shaving their heads. But like in another example, like if you look at something like battle for Algiers or you read France Fanon's discussion of wretched of the earth, the Algerian women, um, were viewed as very, very loyal to the men and the the Liberation Army in in Algeria, so they kind of got a lot of the same same wrath as the men because uh, they're viewed like you can't trust them, you can't really make them into concubines, you can't really deal with them the same way you can as so so. Um, I don't know if what I'm saying is making sense. I'm trying to remember like, like no, what, I, what I was. I,
1: yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm following basically that there are like historical examples of like different kinds of uh, subjugation and violence being directed toward men and sort of different, you know, and sort of, yeah, I get all that. I just couldn't remember like, I couldn't remember like specifically like why, I mean like all of these biological theories about prejudice, they they sort of argue that like we have a psychological infrastructure that's been like, selected for over the course of evolution.
0: I think I remember, and this is very evolutionary psychology, which I know a lot of people don't like. So it's, I'll take it with a great assault. Anyone who's listening, I'm not being prescriptive. I'm just saying being descriptive of what I believe I read. I think the idea is that women are more valuable than men. Like like they have eggs, they have, uh, you can absorb women into because one of the spoils of war, as politically incorrect as it is to say, one of the spoils of war used to be uh, the women and absorbing uh, the women. Like uh, Genghis Khan is said to have sire children across all these uh, populations that he he conquered. Whereas men, w- w- what are you going to do with the uh, subordinate male sperm? You don't want that into the mix. So I think the evolutionary justification was that the women have some value if they're willing to be absorbed. And like you don't have to... It's actually not evolutionarily advantageous to genocide the women for being women if you're invading, because they have a use as far as spreading your genes and whatever, whereas the men are competing uh, sperm. And I think that was the uh, evolutionary reasoning behind it. And again, I'm just repeating what i believe i read
1: yeah i also for the record i did not mean to derail us this much i I sort of like
0: no i don't think i don't think it's a derail at all like i first of all this show does a lot uh derailing and bringing it back it's fine yeah cool okay
1: it's totally fine yeah but so yeah so so that was the, the the main implication of that theory for what justin and i do is that it argues that sort of discrimination tends to be directed toward men more than women like like racial discrimination for example tends to be directed more toward men than it is toward women
0: yeah, and I don't think it's a derailing at all. Just because I believe that um, one of the big things about all of this is trying to figure out hierarchies of of oppression for better or worse, and because that's a that's a viewpoint that I think is very um, counterintuitive to the current discourse, like the idea that men might face more more oppression than women. I think we do kind of have to spell out the reasoning more because I think. People are probably a little more hostile to the idea. I would, I would imagine, because to me, it's, I feel like social dominance theory is probably the one that has the least mainstream uh, penetration, and it's probably for that reason that it's kind of counterintuitive.
1: Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. I think uh, it also. I mean the the implication that like women might not face racial bias categorically is sort of I think something that like scientists and lay people just don't. Believed to be true, you know. I think. I think like that. That's an implication of the subordinate, you know. Taken to its extreme, the subordinate male target hypothesis implies that black women don't face racial discrimination, like and sort of, you know, ever. And I think that that seems inappropriate both to scientists and to to members of the general public, who who are, you know, people who are not necessarily subscribers to the theory. That is,
0: yeah. I mean, especially if you take it to the extreme, like, like I think, I think um, it was trying to say that. They face it to the extent to which they're deemed to be um, loyal to the to the cause of the men. But, you know, at the same time, someone can't look at you as a black woman. E- even if you're a black woman who says, hey, I hate black men and I have nothing to do with them. No one can look at you and just say, hey, I could tell that woman is not affiliated with uh, the men of her race. Just by looking at her like she's driving a car a certain way. That Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't happen. There's no there's no way that you, know, you could ever fully. Uh, Check out. I mean, same thing like if you're a black male conservative, you could be the most anti-black black black male conservative on earth. But if you're driving a car and a police officer just sees you driving that car, uh, there's no way for him to know that you're uh, what your politics are. Yeah. So, yeah, I think um, I can see it being the kind of ideology that would probably attract a lot of uh, people who want to misuse it to say that black women have no no um, no real categorical racial problems yeah but um i mean i think we pretty much covered covered all the did we miss anything uh justin do, do you feel like we've missed any um competing theories or
2: um no i don't think so generally i mean i think that we have sort of i mean as i said earlier i think that a lot of these theories kind of unfold and link to each other in important ways and i think that we are moving into an age in social psychological research as certainly that is really beginning to more seriously engage what the potential for taking an intersectional framework can be for both theorizing, but also for research, for scholarship, for interventions. Um, And so I think that we've kind of touched, I think we've, we've at least engaged at least all of the main uh, broad psychological theories that are related to the book Christopher and I do. I don't know if Christopher thinks that there's another theory we need to discuss
1: but I think we've more no, I think covered it. I do too,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so as well. And I think something that's important to, uh, and I think Justin, you kind of touched on this, is it's not really like a East Coast, West Coast B for people defending the turf and trying to take down other places. I mean, other theories. A lot of this is very complementary and building on each other and... You know, rejecting some parts of competing theories and accepting other parts it it's a very it's a very holistic type of um, conversation. I I found from what I read, it wasn't what I was expecting. It's very different than online, where everything is contentious, and I want to prove that I'm the most oppressed. I'm an MRA. I want to I want to prove that men have it worse. I'm a I'm a feminist who wants to prove that women have it worse. It's it's really not not like that. And I encourage people, it's it's not. Always easy to read, but I think it's a very productive conversation and I wish a lot of the lay conversation was more like this and that kind of um, trying to win all the time, uh, oppression Olympics. But I mean, I think a good place to start would probably be with uh, Christopher's paper, uh, Racial Stereotyping of Gay Men. Can a minority sexual orientation uh Erase race, and one thing I remember from your paper was when you tweeted it. I think it's the first paper of yours that I found. Um, it did not go like wildfire the same way a lot of other papers would. Like if it was, and I have a feeling to, like to me that it's not really what a lot of people want to hear. Because because for example, when David uh, Padula had his paper, there were a lot of reflexive responses to it that people didn't like because because they're trying to say that oh are you claiming that Black gay male privilege is a thing? And then it was kind of dismissed as kind of uh, homophobic. I tweeted out David Perdula's paper, like, oh, this is interesting. And a lot of people got mad at me. They tweeted at me, uh, this is bullshit. There's no such thing as uh, Black gay male privilege. And I'm like, I don't think this paper is saying, well, I don't want to speak for the guy, but I don't think he's saying that uh, there's a universal Black gay male privilege. He's just talking about one context. But it was like, uh-uh, no, you're you're being... Um, whatever. So I was wondering if you found any type of pushback just based on the title alone or, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to think about anything it. Like that.
1: I mean, so I haven't ever received any like overt pushback about the pa- So the paper, should I just say what the finding of the paper is? Um, of
0: course. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Totally. So basically the, the finding of the paper is that when people um, learn that men are gay, uh, they think of these men as seeming less typical of their own racial groups. So when people learn that black men are gay in this country, people in this country, when they learn that black men are gay, they um, tend to think of them as possessing attributes that don't seem quite as stereotypically black as if they thought about straight black men instead. Um, They do the same thing for other groups. So when they learn that East Asian men are gay, they think of them as seeming less Asian, quote unquote, than when they don't learn that these men are gay. So, So that was one of the findings of the paper. And then the other finding of the paper was that something that happens with black men uh, in particular is that when people learn that they're gay, it's not just that people stereotype them as seeming less stereotypically black. They also stereotype them as seeming uh, stereotypically whiter. So they think of them as having like whiter, psych- you know, psychological characteristics that if you send these characteristics to a new group of people and you say to them, like how white do these seem? People say that they seem whiter uh, when these are characteristics that have been listed for gay black men than-, than when they've been listed for straight black men. So, so that's the finding of the paper. Yeah. I, I, I was kind of nervous about, I mean, I was nervous about pushback. I didn't really get much. I mean, essentially throughout the paper, I I tried to discuss the phenomenon as carefully as I could, which was just that, like, I think, I think the reason this stuff all happens, the reason that learning that a person is gay can distort the kinds of racial features that you apply to them or think that they possess um, is because, uh, you know, like Justin was saying, race in people's minds is enmeshed in very inextricable ways with other kinds of things, you know, with race in our minds comes an idea of like, like basically when people think of, of, of gayness, they think of, you know, stereotypically, um, uh, high status qualities. And and those are the same qualities that they assume that white people have. And, you know, in this way, like notions of status and race and sexual orientation are all deeply intertwined in our minds. Um, and, and this is what causes these biases to emerge. Um, when you learn that somebody is gay, a black person is gay, for example, you might think to yourself like, oh, well, like if this person is gay, maybe they have these these other attributes that I associate with gayness. And if those other attributes that a person associates with gayness are are high status attributes, well, those in turn seem to be the same attributes that people associate with whiteness. And so, and so in this way, you can sort of understand how labeling somebody a certain way can sort of distort the way that they make sense of a person's racial group so, in this particular context.
0: So your thought is that people... Associate being gay with being
1: whiter because I mean all this is kind of tricky, be, 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 right? Be, because it's confounded with status. That's what I mean. That's what we argued with the. Yeah, I mean that's the thing that we argued in the paper, and we we did find um uh some we did find evidence for that. So. So, like, it is the case that people, when they, when they list, um, attributes for gay black men relative to, uh, uh, straight black men, they do end up listing traits that if you show these traits to a new group of people, this new group will say those seem higher status. And it is the case that to the extent that those traits seem higher status, um, it turns out that these men are also characterized by traits that people rate as seeming whiter. So, so sort of the status element does correlate with the whiteness element. We later did a different experiment where we, um, where we, we like asked people to think about either black men or East Asian men. And what we manipulated was whether or not these men were described in stereotypically high status roles, things like, being described as like an engineer or a lawyer or things that in this country we associate with status versus not. So in another condition, they're, they're, they're sort of, these, these men, these Asian and these black men are not described as being in high status roles, but instead they're described as being in stereotypically low status roles, doing things like janitorial work, custodial work, fast food service, things like that. And we sh- what we showed is that, um, is that if you, if you get people to imagine either of these groups in high status roles, uh, the, this, the whitening thing no longer happens. And the reason it no longer happens is that if the person in your mind is already kind of high status, then labeling the person as gay doesn't cause them to seem any different than they would have seemed otherwise. And so, in turn, there's no whitening pattern that kind of happens.
0: Uh, this might not be a valid question, but it might be a chicken and egg thing. But is your is your finding that gayness implies whiteness, which implies high status, or is it that gayness implies? high status, which then implies um, whiteness. Like, Did you find one order to be more uh, typical, or was it the kind of thing where whiteness and status are so interrelated that it's not really something you can even really tease apart very easily?
1: You know, honestly, so in the paper, we argued that it was specifically that gayness changes your notions of a person's status and that this in turn associates, you know, influences the perception of that person's whiteness. That's how we talked about it in the paper. But what you just said is 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 the truth of the matter, which is that these two things are so intertwined in people's minds. In this country, to be white is is so linked in people's minds with to be high status. that essentially, you know, both are kind of happening exactly at the same time. And it's kind of impossible to really pin down for sure whether it really is one leading to the other, Uh, because kind of both happen at once.
0: Something I thought was brilliant about your paper, which is not something that I would have intuitively thought about, but when you bring it up in the paper, it makes a lot of sense, is, I mean, I think a lot of us, especially in America, we treat race as a binary of black and white, you know, and Even a lot of um, non-black people of color kind of complain about this, about this idea that um, everyone else is kind of an afterthought and is just kind of treated as like this binary. And I thought what you did was great in that you didn't just conflate deracialization with automatic um, whitening, that you made a point to make it two separate hypotheses, which is one is that um, being gay um, deracializes men of color. But also, does it actually whiten them? And what was interesting is that it ended up leading to some interesting results.
1: You're totally right. Yeah. So the two don't always happen at the same time. So to seem uh, less like your own group is not necessarily by default to seem whiter. So so yeah, Asian, East Asian men in this country are an interesting example because they they already are stereotyped as being in high um, high status roles. People think of East Asian individuals. You know, the stereotypes about them characterize them as being really industrious and really intelligent and all, you know, all these things that we associate with high status. And so for them, when they're labeled as gay, they do seem like they're no longer quote unquote Asian to people, but they don't correspondingly seem any stereotypically whiter.
0: Right. Because a lot of the positive stereotypes that, um, whites have are also associated with, um, Asians. If I, East Asians, if I understand your paper, uh, correctly.
1: Yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, yeah, it's, it's sort of, it seems like they, they have this, the high status thing in common. Um, in terms of the way that people stereotype them.
0: Uh, we didn't talk about your your um, identities, but, you know, just for the uh, audience, because sometimes, because um, one of the things that runs through these papers is sometimes, one of the trains of thoughts in in um, this identity talk is the lived identities of the person um, talking. So if you um, were interested in talking about what your identities are and how how it kind of affected, how you viewed the findings, you know, like, as far as,
1: yeah, well, so I, so I, I'm a gay white man, a gay cisgender white man, um, and I, I mean, I, I, think you know, right when I started, I so I started this research that we're talking about right now, right when I first uh, began my PhD program, and, um, you know, I think, I think right from the get go, I was interested. I, I had actually recently come out of the closet. I came out of the closet, um, like. Uh, like when I was 22, almost 23. And then I started graduate school when I was 24. And I, I just felt like people perceived me so differently when, when I was disclosing um, uh, that I was a gay person. I felt like, I felt like literally the way that people saw me and remembered me and thought about me was changing. And, um, and I, I was just interested in that general question. How can learning that somebody is gay just fundamentally change the way that you remember what they're like or think about who they are? And that was definitely an impetus for this, for this work.
0: Uh, Justin, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, (laughs) Did you have any particular thoughts or questions about uh, Christopher's uh, paper that you wanted to um, share? Whether it's, um, you know, the information in it or as far as what your own lived experiences kind of uh, confirmed or didn't feel right one way or the other. Just any thoughts you might have had or questions.
2: Um, I mean, I don't really have any questions. I think as Christopher articulated, we do somewhat similar work. I think we are engaging, at least in the group that I am currently doing, we are engaging slightly separate questions. But I mean, I think that the approach that is being taken is good. I think what I what I appreciated, I think in a similar way to you, Trevor, was the careful, nuanced discussion of the relationship between high status, whiteness, and uh, sexual orientation, because I do think that um, if you are not careful, uh, those things can become conflated in ways that derail the actual arguments that Christopher and his colleague and his advisor, I think, are trying to make in that um, in that paper. But overall, I mean, I thought that it was it was solid and very interesting work. I mean, the thing that jumps out to me with the East Asian example is when you were discussing the notion of. Um, the associations of high status. I mean, it resonated with me sort of interpersonally, but also in terms of just broader research. I mean, Christopher will be able to talk, can tell you certainly about the, the work of one of the more famous social psychologists, Suzanne Fiske who in, is involved in terms of called the stereotype content model. So looking at what are the stereotypes of these different kinds of groups and where are, they, where are they on basically two broad dimensions. One is warmth and the other is competence. And so what's interesting to me is that it made sense the findings that Christopher had for East Asian men already having high status stereotypes associated with them because that is one of the famous stereotypes, as he pointed out, about East Asian persons, but men in particular, they are agentic, they're hardworking, they're industrious, they're hyper-intelligent, but they're also perpetual foreigners, and they're also secretive or tricky. And so there are these kinds of nuanced relationships as far as... So they're very, very high on competence, is the basic argument of Susan Fiskwood, but they're probably lower on warmth. And so it makes sense then that gayness or the revelation of their sexual orientation in that way does not shift high status around very much, given that that was already an assumed, essentially an assumed one before the X as it relates to Asian identity and Asianness in how that is understood in an American context. But I thought the careful discussion of that unfolding was particularly impressive and useful because I think it's very easy to glide over some of those distinctions in a way that then muddies the work and allows you to make conclusions that I don't know that either author would have intended.
0: So, something, something that came to mind when I was reading this, and Justin, as somebody of Caribbean descent uh, like me, you might be able to um, in, in know where I'm going with this, but one thing that's very interesting about being of um, immigrant descent when you're Black is that, and people do not really kind of think about this or realize this, but I've talked about this with my Asian friends, is how Black immigrants have this thing where they kind of get the stereotypes of African Americans, but also uh, they have a lot of the culture and stereotypes that people kind of associate with immigrant groups, including um East Asian immigrants. Like people write about how Nigerians are hardworking and, Curve busters and engineering classes and how they have certain family structures and how they demand their kids get A's. People say the same thing about a lot of Caribbean immigrants as, as well, like about like there's certain positive stereotypes of immigrants that even get applied to like uh, East Asian immigrants that some black immigrants partially get, even as they're getting the negative stereotypes that come with blackness. And as complicated as this stuff is already, I would I really wonder um, what would happen if people started throwing in um to add to the mix, um the immigrant stuff. I want to know if you've done any thinking about that or if you know anyone else who has uh written about that, if it's something that has crossed your mind. And also if you disagree with any of what I've said, by all means, you can always bring that up as well too.
2: Yeah, I think that can certainly I think that can be true. I agree with you that person's perspectives about Caribbean, um and, and African uh Diasporic immigrant groups uh, typically tend to cohere around being very hardworking, being very industrious, having extremely high sort of academic and personal standards. So I definitely see and have experienced that in different ways. I think what's really intriguing about that, however, is that on the one hand, the stereotypes around industriousness and intelligence in some part can sometimes emerge, and I can speak for being Trinidadian, so I'm not going to discuss other diasporic groups because I don't belong to those, but in terms of being from the Caribbean and being from Trinidad in particular, I think that that relationship to industriousness and excellence in, in in academic pursuits can emerge as a stereotype positive stereotype from our own um, immigrant communities themselves. I think the really interesting thing is that sometimes, regardless of our intention or not, or whether we desire it or not, many of the negative stereotypes that are associated with African-American persons and with blackness writ large as as a broader, superordinate group are sometimes ascribed to us. And I think that distinction is particularly interesting for how much we relate or accept or resist these different kinds of stereotypes, positive or negative. Because I think that the thing that I try to emphasize that I think I'm going to bring up here, because we're talking about positive stereotypes, is the fact that positivity is also imprisoning in important ways. Like putting somebody up on a pedestal and saying, you are really good at this thing. Asians being good at math is always a really fantastic example for me, because I have some colleagues of mine who are Asian who aren't good at math and who see how much people demean them for not being good at math, even if they themselves are also not good at mathematics, because now you're breaking a norm that we expect. And so you have to be punished in some particular social or psychological way for your deviance from this particular categorization that we have put for you. But what does that then mean? And what does that mean within family structures? So, what does that mean if I am Caribbean and I'm not, you know, stereotypically hyper intelligent or I'm not perceived to be hardworking? What does that do? How does that, how then do I integrate these different identities? And so as far as integrating it into my own work, I haven't considered it as yet. I think I'm trying to do things as we do in science, and Christopher can attest to this, somewhat incrementally, because I think these are all very interesting questions, but you also can't address every single intersection at the same time. And I also don't think that all intersectional identities, all interactions of identities matter equally in terms of thinking about broader systemic violence, in terms of thinking about power asymmetries, In our broader American society. And so I think for me, it's potentially a thing that I'm thinking about because I do do immigration work in a separate line of work, but it's not something I have considered integrating just as yet. At least not in quite the same way, but it is something to consider for the future. But I haven't given it too much great in-depth theoretical thought beyond just my personal lived experience of existing as someone who's both American and also Trinidadian and how I sort of engage with the world across these different identities.
0: All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two.